I appreciate our visitors being here. So thankful that you're here. So glad you're here. And I hope that you will uh, come back and join us again, not only for worship, but for other events in the life of this church. Um, I, I also want to introduce one of our newest members. Uh, Mitty Toon, where are you this morning, Mitty? I, uh, there she is. There's Mitty. I want to welcome Mitty. Mitty grew up here. But she's moved back to this area, and so uh, she wants to be identified as a member of this church family, and we're, we're happy that she does. Um, the, um, let, let's pray, and then I want to I start out this third part of this series that we're preaching and that we're having a really good response to, okay? So would you join me in prayer? Father, I ask that you would bless us today. Be with us in both the preaching and the hearing of the Word. And I say that because I know that in this conversation, um, that uh, as I'm speaking, as we are all listening to your word, I know that your spirit moves in that. And I pray that we will be responsive and open to what it is that you want us to know and the thoughts and the actions that you want us to change. And Father, I pray that you'll give us the grace and the comfort and the assurance and the joy to go through with that change and to step across the line into a new life loved as one of your children we pray this in jesus name amen so we started this sermon uh series hope for healing three weeks ago it's a companion to um the class that started on october 1st called life's healing choices and the book and the study guides are available on that You may be interested in starting a small group or reading that on your own. And I want to give you a web address that's real simple to remember, okay? I wished I'd put this online, but I didn't. Can we put that on the Facebook, on the West Ark Facebook page? We'll do it. So look for West Ark Church of Christ on Facebook, and we'll get that out there today. The link, it's West Ark, W-E-S-T-A-R-K, all one word. Forget the hyphen, it's not there. Westark, W-E-S-T-A-R-K dot O-R-G slash C-R. And if you'll go to that website, there'll be a sign-up form that comes up. And we want you to think about, I mean, it actually, it gives you the opportunity to say, I'd like to know more about Celebrate Recovery. And Lord willing, that's going to begin in January. And uh, we're going to have more opportunities to explore what it means to have hope for healing. I can tell you, I want to encourage you to sign up there, to sign up to be um, a participant in that, to serve at that, to help with that. There's all sorts of ways you can do it that the uh, form will explain. And I can tell you right now, we need um, more men who are willing to join into a, um, a study group. And um, so this is your call, guys. I know, because you're not on Facebook, and I don't blame you. Uh, you know, I, I get it. You go on Facebook, you rag about your sports team, and then you leave. I mean, why? who cares what anybody else has to say? I mean, that's all Facebook is for men. And uh, Shane, we need to talk to the guys in Silicon Valley. Maybe we do need a Facebook for men, and, you know, I don't know. Um, probably wouldn't work. They probably thought about it. It's a failure. But uh, I want you to be a part of this. The healing choices that we have before us, uh, we're going to get to the third one, but I want to remind you of where we've been so far. We, we make that first choice to choose to admit that I am not God. And it sounds simple, but that, that is a huge statement because often we live our lives as if 
We are the beginning and end of all responsibility and power in our lives. And just accepting the idea that we're not God, but our Creator made us. That's the first choice. Second choice is that if you do believe that God exists, then what kind of God do you have? And that's a question that comes up over and over again in Scripture. Sure, there's a God, but what's He like? And then we learn, we choose to believe what He says about Himself and what He says about us. That we, we matter to God. That He has the power to help us recover and grow and be stronger. The bottom line of all of this is God loves you. He loves you. Which leads us to our third choice. And we're going to go ahead and bring it up. Uh, Well, no, we're not. (laughs) Okay, before we get there, let's let's do a little correction on what I call bumper sticker theology. Okay, Because there's a lot of bumper sticker theology that exists out there today. And, um, you know, I probably need to do a whole series at some point where we correct all the bumper sticker theology. Um, If you see it, you know, know, bumper sticker theology is just like uh, terrorism. If you see it, say something. If you see it, question it, okay? Because you don't know that it's always good. A few years ago, you may remember that the license plate, God is my co-pilot, was popular. Showed up on uh, trucks and cars everywhere. The statement comes from the memoir of a World War II fighter pilot. And uh, he didn't mean anything like the statement that ended up on bumper stickers and license plates. Uh, He was just simply saying that if you're going to be a fighter pilot fighting in World War II, you're going to have to trust that God gets you back. In other words, there's a fair amount of risk involved. Okay, But but this this little statement, God is my co-pilot, I think... There was an earnest and sincere effort to make that a statement that said, you know, I'm going into life with God, and I've got God with me. But then it led to critiques, and there's even been books written that say, if God is your co-pilot, you need to change seats. Uh, Because it means the wrong person is driving the vehicle of your life. Uh, One fellow even wrote a book called, uh, God is my co-pilot, and that's the problem. Um, this, uh, you see then the, the gist behind the critique. That the critique is trying to say you can't relegate God to co-pilot status where he's there to just help out if you need him. Where he's there to give advice. In fact, I think sometimes now uh, we would, uh, you know, if, if this were to come out today, we'd probably call it uh, God is my Siri or God is my Garmin or God is my Cortana or whatever. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that you ask questions to when you're in trouble, and you may or may not like the answer that you get. So, uh, this bumper sticker theology needs to change, but it does represent where we often find ourselves, that we're happy to follow God as long as He's there when we need Him, but the rest of the time, we're generally going to be okay. Which gets us to the third choice. It's the commitment choice. This can be the tough one, but this is the one that if you accept that there is a God and you're not that God, and if you accept that God cares for you, then at some point there has to be some sort of covenant. There has to be some sort of commitment, and we'll use the, we'll use the S word, submission or surrender. There has to be something that where we turn over 
our life to God. We get out of the driver's seat. Now, that can be challenging because we like to drive. I like to drive. I like to be in the driver's seat. But, and even in my life, turning over too much control to others can be dangerous and scary because people may not do things as well as I can in my own mind. Or in reality. I mean, it is possible, you know. But they might do things better, but I don't want them to. Or, or, it, may, or it may be that I'm afraid I'm going to get taken advantage of. But we're not asking in this choice for any of us to give our lives up to anyone else, to the church, to any church leader. But we're giving control, we're giving the wheel over to our Creator to our king. And it's that king language, that royal language that sometimes escapes us. We fit it into our, into our uh, worship. We do our own bumper sticker theology by decorating our auditorium with banners. And we see it, but we may not think about it. What does it mean when we say that he is king of kings, lord of lords? What does it mean when we say that we are one of his disciples? There's been a surrender. You have to bow the knee. You have to turn over your loyalty and your life to the one who deserves it. If we can make this choice to commit our lives and our will to Christ's care and control, things start to change. And ultimately, I'm going to tell you, for the better. But getting there can be challenging. But I want you to see that the, that the surrender choice, it doesn't create more problems. In fact, the promise is that it's going to alleviate burdens. What you see on the screen are the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. It's been recorded in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says to us, come to me, all of you who are weary and overburdened. I'll give you rest. Put on my yoke. Learn from me, for I am gentle, humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that verse probably speaks to us. Have you ever felt weary and overburdened? I know you have. I've talked to many of you, and you know, I'm not talking about deep, deep talk, uh, talks or thoughts about anything. It's just, how are you doing today? Ah, oh, it's one of those days. Weary and overburdened. I get it. Yeah. How are you doing? Oh, just tired, weary, and overburdened. I get it. I say it too. We're looking for rest. I mean, the greatest thing right now, I mean, for some of us, the biggest goal of the day is to go home this afternoon and take a nap. Yeah. And I'm not putting that down. We need it because we're weary. We're overburdened. And it may be a physical tired or it may be a mental and emotional tired. And here's Jesus who says, well, then come to me. I'll give you more than a nap. In fact, what I'll do is I'll change the nature of your burden. I'll change the nature of the cart that you've been tugging around. No more of this business of uh, trying to pull a cart that has square wheels and doesn't work. No, no. My burden's easy. 
My burden's light. Come to me. I'll give you rest for your soul. There's the promise of Jesus. You've been invited. That, 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 that word is spoken to you. Somebody will say, well, in context, who is he speaking it to? I get that. But in context, it's also being shared with us by Matthew. There is a continuing invitation here. Now, here's my question. If Jesus is telling us this, then why is it so hard sometimes to accept that? In the book, uh, Life's Healing Choices, John Baker names five things that hold us back. And we do well to name these things and recognize them. Pride, guilt, fear, worry, and doubt. Pride. That's an interesting word. I think this is one of those words that's going through a shift in meaning. In a day and age of identity politics, pride is the idea of no longer being ashamed of stuff that people were once ashamed of. So you have pride. You're proud about who you are. And all groups use it. There's even, now they even have white pride, which is a bit troubling, okay? And, and I mean, that, 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 that becomes a problem. But, but I want to go back to a meaning of the word where pride has to do with a certain amount of dignity and a certain amount of saving face from others. I want you to think back about small cultures and small communities or, or places where how you're seen in that environment matters. You have a certain amount of pride that you have to preserve. It's almost like a type of social capital that if you don't preserve it and don't maintain it, then you're going to end up socially bankrupt. And so if you ever feel like you're the person that has to be the smartest person in the room, that's pride. If you ever feel like you're the person who has to say, hey, listen, I'm not judging others, but no, I don't really suffer from those problems. I've got my life together. That's pride. If we have to be that person that proves that we're the strongest person and that others ought to listen to us, that's pride. And so what you'll see with pride is you will see a denial of any weakness. We may talk about it to one or two individuals. We may admit it. We may try to prove to everybody that we don't ever cry. I don't care what Toy Story movie you take me to. I don't cry. I'm not weak like that. Pride also has to do with self-realization that the whole goal in life is for us to become the greatest and best person that we can be, and we even write that off as somehow improving society i'm not talking about being at our best i'm talking about being the best what this leads to is a kind of do-it-yourself salvation a gospel of me a, a gospel of um of independence that says that god has really thrown us a big tool chest he's given us all the opportunities He's, it's kind of like God is Jeff Probst, and he's put us on the island, and he says, here you go, here's all your tools, now survive, and I'll reward the survivor. But that 
That kind of theology has been around for a long, long time. Pride keeps us from admitting that we even have a burden. It prevents us from stepping across the line and saying, Jesus, I'm trading in this burden which I've had trouble admitting that I have because of my pride, and I want your easier burden. I want your easier yoke. I'll take it. Or it might be that if that didn't, you know, if you're thinking, I don't know, I don't feel any of that, well, maybe it's guilt. Sometimes we get ashamed of asking others for help. But we're definitely ashamed of asking God for help. Because we get this idea, and maybe this is from our bumper sticker theology world, that what we've got to do with God is we've got to go before God and prove to Him that we did do well with all the opportunities He gave us. Look here, God, I didn't mess up anything. We all want to be the five-talent servant. God, you gave me five talents, I came back with ten. Oh, you're great. You even get the ones from the losers. Ha <laughs> ha! Thank you, Lord. You're happy to have me as your disciple. Oh, yes, I am. Red letter day for me, says God. And so we're afraid to ask for help uh, because we're embarrassed. We've let him down. A form of that guilt shows up in one of the ten forms of twisted thinking. By the way, if you ever want to look that up, it's all over. You can find it online. It's called Ten Forms of Twisted Thinking. One of those is called labeling. Labeling is the form of twisted thinking where um, we wear the badge and we name what we are. We're not just talking about the things we've done. We say that's what we are. I'm a jerk. I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. I'm a mess. I'm a loser. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I am, I am, I am. And what it does is it starts to create a negative filter and we start to blame ourselves. And you will have people that have been in recovery for decades. And they will still wear a negative title. Listen, I know that the, the, the opposite of this would be pride, where we have no problems. But somewhere there has to be a third way, where it's not just wearing this, this label that we can never escape, but where we actually come to see ourselves as something new, that God is working in our lives. And it's one thing to say, I've made some mistakes. It's one thing to say, I've done some stupid things. It's one thing to say, I haven't always been good to myself and I haven't always taken care of my health. But who I am is who Christ makes me because I've given that labeling over to Him. And when that happens, we've got a new name. We've got a new identity. Let me, let me ask you to think about it like this if this is what challenges you. If you're trying to teach a child, maybe it's your child, maybe it's um, someone you care for, maybe, it's a, maybe you're a teacher. And every time this child makes a mistake, he or she blames, puts the blame on himself or herself and says, you know, I'm this and I'm that and I can't get it right and I am, I am no good. You're not going to sit well with that, are you? 
you're going to challenge that kind of thinking. Don't you think that God is just as concerned when you put those labels on yourself? He's the creator, not you. So you, you need to trust in him to give you your name and to tell you who you are. And remember, our second choice is God cares for us. When we start talking about God, all of this can lead to fear. Because it puts us in a, it puts us in a situation where we're not always used to relating to God every day. Or it may just simply be the idea of stepping across the line. Stepping across the line can be a big decision. And we don't always know what's on the other side. And sometimes our own pain, our hurt, the difficult situation we're in, it may not be comfortable, we may not like it, but it's more certain than what's on the other side of the line. Maybe we're afraid of giving up control. I mean, what do we give up? It could be petty. It's like, I don't want to give up my time. I don't want to give up my life. I like to be in control. Okay. But admitting that is a start. It might be that we're afraid of failure. If I fail, then it'll all be for nothing. I've made this decision. But if I fail, I'll still mess up. And maybe one of the things we have in mind there is a a confused idea about who God is and how he works in our life, or it may be that we're confusing salvation strictly... Okay, I'm going to use some big words here, okay? It's got a few syllables, but don't worry. We're going to get through this. It may be that we're focusing completely on justification and not sanctification. What's the difference? Okay, let me put it like this. Let's take the news recently. And what happened in Las Vegas? Everyone would say that the officers who fired on the man who was using the weapons to attack the cloud, that that shooting was justified. It had to be done to save lives. We can debate that, but we essentially understand that it's justified. At the same time, I think we would all say it's not good. It's unfortunate that that had to be done because of what else was happening. And the whole thing participates in a world of brokenness and evil. Sanctification is the process where those things that are evil and corrupt and ruined are not just justified and said to be right, but they're sanctified and they're made good and they're made holy. Now that is part of God's salvation project that we're not always aware of. So if you think that crossing the line and committing your life to Jesus is simply matter, a matter of saying, hey God, I need you to change my, uh, uh, my marker from uh, the condemned category to the saved category, and then I won't bother you anymore and I'll get on with my life. That's justification, and God's got a lot more on the other side of the line than that. He's saying, I, I don't want to just uh, change your status or you know, reactivate your insurance policy. What I want to do 
is take a whole look at your burden that you're carrying around and all the, the, the yoke that you've been wearing and how it's hurting you and damaging you, and I want to refit all of that. I want to sanctify you, says God. And that means we've got to trust in Him. And trust can be something that we're afraid of as well. But remember, we're not trusting in an imperfect being. We're trusting in our Creator and King. Well, I've already given you three of these, and all of this might be, you know, activating your, your brain and your heart so much that you're anxious and you're worried, and you're saying, what if I don't get it right? What if, what if I don't understand what he was saying? What if I am too fearful? What if I am too guilty? What if I am too proud? And that's where worry comes in, and it holds us up. And we start borrowing trouble. I like that term, borrowing trouble. Because when you borrow trouble, you have to do something with it. Have you ever borrowed something from somebody and you've kept it around your house for years? You know, and it sits like on your, you know, on a coffee table or in your garage or something. It's like, oh yeah, I gotta take that back to somebody. You know. Maybe you've borrowed something to somebody and they've kept it for years. There kind of comes a point, a statute of limitations, where we say, ah, just keep it. I don't want it back. And that's what happens to borrowed trouble. We start to own it. We didn't really own it. We didn't really buy it. But we've borrowed it, and it becomes ours. That might work with power tools and lawnmowers. It might even work out to your advantage, but it doesn't work with trouble. Because we start borrowing trouble that never belonged to us and may not even be real. And that's a, that's a shame. Because that sort of borrowing trouble about committing our life to Jesus can cause us to halt and hold back in making this good healing choice and decision we stall out waiting for the perfect scenario well everything's got to be just right and then i can choose for jesus because if it's not uh, well then you know i'll do it wrong and i'll have to redo it and so you end up with people getting baptized five six seven eight nine ten times i mean if if that sort of thing's going to happen then let's just outfit everybody with their own personal baptismal kit so that wherever they go they can say "Ah, i goofed up i got it figured out now rebaptize it's kind of like the reset button on your video games it doesn't work like that this is where worry creates that negative filter and that negative filter causes us to exchange john baker says this in his book it causes us to exchange the decision-making process with the problem-solving process because the decision is simply okay we've got to make a decision where are we going to go think about it when you're driving and you're going places and and maybe you're stuck somewhere and you're at a crossroads and you're like i don't know which way is the right way to go And you're worried that if you choose the wrong way, you're going to have to back up and go back. And every other passenger in the car is going to give you the business. And you're going to be called a bad driver forever. No one will ever go anywhere with you again. And they won't let you drive. But I can guarantee you what will happen if you sit there in your car at the crossroads without making a decision. Nothing. Once you make the decision to go somewhere one way or the other you can correct course that's the problem solving but the decision has to be made worry will cause us to hold back on crossing the line and making a decision or it may be doubt 
Maybe we disqualify ourselves. That's what doubt does. It's so dangerous. We disqualify ourselves before we even begin because we have doubts about crossing the line. We think that maybe we don't have what it takes to cross the line. Maybe we don't know enough. Maybe we don't understand enough. Maybe we don't know God the right way. There's this wonderful story in, uh, in Mark 9. I want to read that to you. I, I want you to just follow this with me, this Mark 9 story. At the foot of the mountain, they, being Jesus and Peter and John, found a great crowd surrounding the other disciples as some teachers of the religious law were arguing with them. The crowd watched Jesus in awe as he came toward them and they ran to greet him. What's all this arguing about? he asked. One of the men spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son for you to heal him. Now he can't speak because he's possessed by an evil spirit and that won't even let him talk. And whenever this evil spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground and it makes him foam at the mouth and grind his teeth and become rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you until you believe? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was very small, the evil spirit often makes him fall into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us. Do something if you can. Pause. I want you to think about what's going on. Here's a desperate parent who's got this child. That, 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 that something is happening that he can't even understand fully. But he knows this much. It's going to cause that child to either be harmed or possibly even kill him. And he's willing to do everything. And like we often do, he has come to people for help, and they're sitting around having a Bible study about it. Oh, I don't know, you know, can you heal this kind? I don't know. Well, how long has this been happening? What's going on here? What do we really need to do? I mean, the teachers of the law have showed up. The disciples have showed up. Meanwhile, the evil spirit just keeps doing its work, <coughs> which causes Jesus to enter into the scene and marvel at their lack of faith. Now, we tend to equate faith with knowledge, status. In fact, we tend to equate faith with the same sort of things that have to do with pride, our ability to know, our ability to have status, or guilt, our ability to avoid what's wrong and not be guilty, or with our ability not to worry and to have it all together, or with our ability to be in control, and so we're not afraid. And here, Jesus is telling them that they don't have faith. Remember, these are his disciples on the one hand, and on the other hand, the teachers of the law. You don't excel greater than that. These are the top-notch experts and leaders, but he tells them you don't have faith. And then when this desperate father says, just help me if you can. One day I'm going to figure out what the tone of Jesus' statement is. What do you mean if I can? I wonder, is Jesus offended? Is it, what do you mean if I can? 
Or is Jesus saying, is he being gentle and saying, well, what do you mean by if I can? Is he trying to understand? Oh, we like that because we think Jesus is never supposed to get aggravated. But, you know, but, but, you know, what is he trying to say? It doesn't really matter because what happens next is what's great. Jesus says, anything's possible if a person believes or if a person faiths. Now, you remember that last week we said there's a theme running throughout all of Scripture about God, that nothing is too difficult for God. And this desperate father who sees this child in a state where he can't do anything about it, these disciples can't do anything about it, the teachers of the law can't do anything about it, everybody is just helpless to do anything about it, And Jesus is about to ask him, are you willing to step over the line into a larger reality where something can be done? Because, you know, anything's possible if someone trusts in God. And I love this father's statement. The father instantly replied, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. Well, which is it? Does he believe or does he unbelieve? It's not belief in terms of an assent to facts. It's faith. It's trust. You know that parable where Jesus says, you know, if you have faith of a mustard seed, how how much does mustard seed faith weigh? Have you ever heard of anybody having more than mustard seed faith? How do you quantify faith? Because I'd think by now at this point, with all the work I've put in and everything, I'd think at least I've got about a walnut-sized faith, you know, or something like that. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I ought to be moving up, you know, maybe even into the, uh, the grapefruit cantaloupe area, you know. I mean, come on, how do we get there? And I mean, if a mustard seed faith can do all this, then if we've got basketball-sized faith, what's that going to do for you? Oh, my goodness. How about elephant-sized faith, mountain-sized faith? I mean, you'd be God yourself. It's ridiculous, isn't it, the whole thing? The point of the parable is you don't quantify faith because faith is trust in a power that's greater. It's not about our ability. It's a wonderful little image. Uh, You know, mustard seeds faith will do it. Really, that's all it takes? Yeah, that's all it takes because it either is or it isn't. You trust or you don't. And that's why you cross the line. Quantity is not the issue. I want to show you how this comes into this decision-making process, and then we're done. Romans 6. Paul is talking to people that he hasn't even met yet in the real world. Not all of them. And when he's talking, you can see that Paul is thinking about the time that he had to cross the line, where he had to get past fear and worry and doubt and pride and even guilt. And he says to them, you know, what do we do? Do we keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? Well, I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That's what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind And when we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace. A new life in a new land. That's Peterson's translation, the message. But I think it brings to light something we've overlooked about what is going on in baptism. That baptism is a crossing. That baptism is stepping over the line. Baptism in Romans 6, Paul will describe it in terms of death. It's a separation from one life 
It's birth. It's a renewal into a new life. It's a new name. It's a new creation. It's just like God in Genesis hovering over the waters, recreating again. This is the crossing of the line. And when we do that, you can't go back to what was, but you open yourself up to the new reality. So today I want you to think about that third choice. Who do you commit your life to? Who is in control? Who's piloting you? If there is a God that is not you, if there is a God that cares about you, if you've already made those choices, then can you not also make the choice that Christ can be your king, that you can submit to him? He's inviting you to get rid of the burdens and the weariness. So what holds you back? As we sing this song, one of the things we do is we have shepherds that will be up here. And they're just here to pray with you if you need to pray with them. Because maybe you have been holding back. Or maybe you've crossed that line and you need to remember what that's all about. Those same shepherds or other shepherds will be right back here. If you go through those doors, there'll be a room there with pews in it. You can go there. And they're just simply guides, people to pray with you. Any of us here would be happy to share that moment with you. Because what we're doing is we're encouraging one another to commit ourselves to Christ and trust in Him. So let's stand, let's sing. If there's any way we can encourage you today, let us know.